This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. If you like first person, you'll love Deep Dish on Global Affairs, a weekly podcast going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. Subscribe to Deep Dish on Global Affairs today, wherever you get your podcasts. From Foreign Policy, I'm Sarah Wildman, and this is First Person. This week, the global reverberations of India's historic decision on LGBT rights. Kenya's high court is scheduled to rule on a petition to decriminalize LGBT lives and relationships. The legal battle there comes on the heels of a case in India, where the Supreme Court decided last September that LGBT lives and relationships were no longer a crime. Activists in India and around the world celebrated the decision. I'm feeling amazing. We're going to party. I don't know. Is this so difficult to express? Really relieved. Uh, it's a huge weight off our shoulders. It was a lot of nights we couldn't sleep. And it's finally... But in scores of countries in Africa and Asia, homosexuality remains illegal. In a handful of them, it is punishable by death. On the podcast this week, we look at the 10-year legal battle to overturn Article 377 of India's Penal Code, a British-era colonial law. Our guest, Minika Guraswamy, was one of the human rights lawyers who argued the case before the Indian Supreme Court. First of all, tell us what Article 377 of the Indian Penal Code was or is. It speaks to, quote, unnatural sexual offenses, which has been interpreted to mean um, same-sex relationships, sodomy, could be oral sex, but really sort of symbolically, legally, institutionally, socially, was used against mostly homosexual men. Um, It's a provision that is a colonial legacy that continues across many post-colonial nations today. So you will find variations of it in in Kenya and in Malaysia. Um, There's an amended variation of it that exists uh, in Singapore. You know, so across the Commonwealth, you had certain variations of this section. And prior to its existence, was there more tolerance in India? Yeah, so, you know, Indian society did not, in the past, criminalize same-sex conduct. We were not that. Uh, And this is not to set up a dichotomy of Mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. pre-colonial era as Mm -hmm. being only full of enlightenment and joy and permissiveness Mm -hmm. and equality. I'm, I'm not... I'm not Mm -hmm. making that case. But certainly in this context, we did not have criminalization, unlike certain other traditions. So with becoming a colony came this attempt to uh, regulate the native, i.e. Indians in this case. And part of that regulation included the criminalization of unnatural sex which, you know, in many ways represented uh, Victorian morality of that time. The penal code was first tried in India, so we were the lab. You know, so the point still remains that, you know, after independence, why didn't we do more? And that, I think, is an ongoing conversation 
in India of how do we reimagine our legal system, of how do we truly decolonize that relationship between the citizen and the state. And after independence, what did it mean to be a gay man or lesbian in yeah. India? Was it criminalized? I mean, were you prosecuted? What, what, what was it like? So as you know, uh, and this is true in America as well, it is not necessarily the limited number of prosecutions mm-hmm. uh, that are sodomy law and unnatural sexual offenses law. That's not always just a big question, right? Um, really, the phenomenon that you experience when you have this kind of law in place is a phenomenon of the chilling of expression, is a phenomenon of being an unconvicted felon, is a phenomenon of trying to find love in a time when your love is policed, is a phenomenon of young LGBT you know, citizens in their countries growing up believing that they are criminals uh, or being told that they are criminals if they don't believe that. So it is what you do to a substantial section of your population. You know, conservative estimates, the chief justice and this judgment says 7 to 8% of India. And, and so in India, that would mean 135 million Indians. Yeah. You reduce them to being unconvicted felons. Mm-hmm. So it is the chilling effect of life and love and expression that sodomy statues bring, which is almost even more egregious Uh, than prosecutions, which are usually much more limited in number because of the nature of the offense that you have to prove. But it's the power that you give the state, the police, to enter your homes, the power you give them over your bodies, which in so many ways is symbolic, I suppose, of a colonial state. How did movements for gay liberation globally, or certainly in the West, let's say, have an impact on India? Look, I think that you know, the impact of Western rights movements is always overstated and overbelieved in terms of in the West. In India, there's been a very strong domestic movement for rights uh, in the LGBT community, in the women's movement, um, farmers' movements, caste movements. I mean, this is a country that was founded um, because nationalist leaders chose to march. Gandhi chose to be beaten, chose to fast. Uh, This is a country built on movements. Mm -hmm. Uh, It has been built by folks who chose to go to prison and chose to actually, through nonviolence, retake their country. So it's a rich heritage of movements. Mm -hmm. Uh, And one such movement is the LGBTQ movement. How did you become involved with efforts to repeal it? You know, I think that um, as a younger lawyer, I worked on the case that a smaller panel of Supreme Court judges heard in 2011 and 2012. So the Indian Supreme Court, unlike the American Supreme Court, sits in panels of judges. It doesn't sit on bank. So this was a case that was heard in 2011 where two judges of the Indian Supreme Court upheld the unnatural sexual offenses provision. Um, We lost that case. Um, There had been movement in a positive direction, and then that was a setback. Yes. So the Delhi High Court, and I'm from Delhi, the state, Um, The Delhi High Court found that the unnatural sexual offenses provision was unconstitutional, rightly so. And this was in 2009, and Mm -hmm. this was a moment of celebration. But the case then was appealed by groups who disagreed with this decision, and the Supreme Court overturned the High Court's decision. So this is a moment in 2009 when, you know, a lot of younger LGBT folk were coming out. And then you had this decision in December 2013 
where it was overturned. It must have been devastating. It was devastating, I think. It was not just a moment of grief, I think, for LGBT Indians, but it was a moment of grief for Indians who believed that the idea of India mm-hmm. was one of freedom, was one of expression, was one of an equal dignity, was also one where you redressed inequalities. And one of the ways you redress inequalities is to remove laws that degrade citizens. And sodomy statutes do exactly that. They degrade citizens. So this was a moment of great grief. But fortunately, that grief quickly turned to anger. And Mm -hmm. that anger quickly turned to um, some of us who are litigators saying, okay, well, how do we set this right? And then we decided, and um, five lawyers, uh, four women, one man, uh, and I'm going to tell you their names because they're so terrific, uh, Preeta Srikumar, Neha Nakpal, Arundhati Kaju, Sarah Kripa. You know, in, we decided that we wanted to tell the story differently because we felt there was something more that we could do in a courtroom, which is we didn't want to litigate this as institutional litigation, as organizations going to court, but we wanted to take LGBT citizens to court, mm-hmm. which is something that hadn't happened before. Because part of this story is how do you humanize folks who've been rendered invisible, in mm-hmm. the court system at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in 2015, we were sitting down to breakfast with, with two old friends who were also impacted by this law. And you know, over breakfast, we said, well, we need to do something about this. Would you like to go to court? Uh, and Nafti Johar, Sunil Mehra, who were the first two petitioners in this case, said yes. And it was a real moment because in the face of a sodomy law that had been recently upheld, you couldn't look at them and say that this won't happen again. You couldn't look at them and say, we will not lose, we will protect you if crazy show up at your doorstep. This will not result in your professional lives being damaged or your reputations being damaged. You can't assure any client of that. But you especially can't assure clients in this case where this is such a test case. So they were taking on huge risk. Huge risk. And these five petitioners who went to court are just so brave. Each of them instantly, immediately wanted to go back to court. Mm. Uh, When I think of what gives you hope, what has the potential to make change, what has the potential to bring joy in these moments of great darkness, it is just sheer courage. It is folks saying that we will not abide by this darkness. And these petitioners, and and subsequently we took multiple petitions to court, these petitioners um, were all saying this, that we will not abide by this compact with darkness. And it was essential to your case that they be seen. Yes. They came to court. Uh, You know, we wanted to tell this story of these are citizens, Mm -hmm. This is who I am. This is my life. You know, I am an award-winning dancer. I am an award-winning journalist. I am your everyday citizen. Um, You should be proud of me, but this is what your law does to my life. Mm. And this is what your law has done to my life. Um, So Navtej and Sunil, you know, been together 26 years in this relationship and had lived and loved each other despite being unconvicted felons. You know, one of the five petitioners, who they'd been together 46 years, and his partner died a year before we filed. And this is what I wanted to tell in court, that, you know, really just this, how strongly must you love to love in this time of this sodomy statute 
of being unconvicted felons. And the law has, is a great moral indicator, right, of being told that your love is criminal. So I think that that is the story we wanted to tell in a courtroom, and we did. You know, so much of constitutionalism in any jurisdiction is about politics meeting codified law, meeting values, and meeting a vision of who we are and who we want to become. Um, so as a society. As a society. And it is so important for judges to understand that, to see the lives that are being regulated or being harmed or being injured. So to have our clients in that courtroom looking at these judges and to be able to look at these judges and say, this is who this person is. These judges had not met gay men or lesbians before, is that correct? Well, I don't know that, right? I think it is safe to say that because you didn't have in the past um, gay men and lesbian women going to court, that their stories weren't being heard. And that has changed now. Mm-hmm. Now we have couples going to court saying, protect me. My parents want to separate me. That is what has changed today in India. So, Did you get pushback personally? You know, I, it was interesting because after the decision, my, my Twitter feed, you know, was obviously celebratory, but there was equally, there were folks, you know, who disagreed with this. But, you know, Sarah, look, I litigate tough constitutional law cases. You know, I've got worse pushback in other cases. In this case, there was a lot of joy Mm -hmm. all over the country. You know, if you don't get pushback, then I think you're not doing your job. When did you realize that this might go in a good direction? I think when we started arguing the case. And you just know as a litigator, you can feel the courtroom. You can tell from the expression on the justices' faces. You always know when you step into a courtroom and you start arguing. Within a few minutes, you know. You have a feel of this. And it is that intangible energy, which is a courtroom. Within a few minutes, I figured out that we could push for much, much more. And, you know, it is very gratifying because I think the court more than matters midway uh, in, in terms of they walked this journey with us. Yeah. Um, Can you explain it a little further? Yes, yes, because I think the decision is important in this political moment for multiple reasons. One, yes, the Supreme Court resoundingly, through a unanimous set of four judgments, says that gay and lesbian Indians are entitled to rights of equality, dignity, non-discrimination, freedom of expression, and liberty. Also, very extensive decision. So this is not a decision located in privacy. You know, you do what you do in your bedroom, which is kind of like reducing all our lives to like pornography, which is you do what you do in your bedroom. But this is a a decision which talks about equal citizenship. So one of the justices says there is a constitutional right to nonconformity in the context of ideology, orientation, dress, food. But importantly, all the justices speak to this idea of constitutional morality, which is a constitutional principle that they have kind of put together, which says that we will not decide social values issues on the basis of majoritarianism or populism or social morality. We will decide these only in the terms of constitutional values. And I think that this is significant because I think it's a decision that speaks to other constitutional courts in this moment, in this world moment of populism, by saying that, no, it is not okay that you will have muscular majorities 
pushing around minorities. It is not okay that our politics will be decided on the basis of majoritarianism or populism. But as courts, we have to wade in and stem that. As courts, we have to wade in and be faithful to our constitutions and good constitutions and sensitive constitutionalism is about being counter-majoritarian. And do you think they had an eye to that global perch when they were making this decision? I believe they did in a good way because I believe that with decisions such as this, you've really seen the Indian Supreme Court becoming a world court. It's become a court which is engaging in a global conversation. And that conversation has a very strong message, which is, what is the role of a good constitutional court in these times of majoritarian, muscular majoritarian majorities? And Kenya is about to argue their case. Yes. And so it's indicative of what is happening and how important this decision is. The Kenyan High Court was hearing a case which spoke to gay rights, and they had reserved judgment. But when this decision in the Indian Supreme Court in Navtej Singh Johar, when it came out, the high court formally takes the decision on the record and then actually asks parties in Kenya, the opposing parties, to address arguments on this decision. And so we hope with great humility that this in some way will illuminate the conversation in Kenya as well. If you like First Person, you'll love Deep Dish on Global Affairs, a weekly podcast going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. Each episode has new guests, like Israeli security experts explaining cyber terrorism or Hollywood producers covering China's influence over the U.S. box office. Deep Dish describes what's happening, why it matters, and what to watch as the story unfolds. Subscribe to Deep Dish on Global Affairs today, wherever you get your podcasts. Take us to the day of the decision. Um, You know, you get a couple of days notice before a decision has been given, and this is true for all Supreme Courts. And so I was actually uh, on my way to see my folks who live uh, a two-hour flight away. So my partner and I were going to do that. And uh, as we landed, I have 20 messages on my cell phone, and she has 20 messages on her cell phone. And we knew, because we couldn't check the message yet, because you couldn't have reception and signal, and would you just know that the decision is coming down? So we landed, and we took the flight. The, uh, uh, Return uh, bus flight back. And my dad was like, wait, but we've made dinner for you. <laughs> um, and I'm like, Pop, I think I need to be there. So we didn't have access to anything. So a friend of ours booked a ticket, which was waiting on my cell phone as I disembarked. We told the airline that we need to go back for this decision. So they rushed us through security. It was wonderful, right? We flew back, you know, went to court the next morning. And, you know, it was just, there was this kind of moment, right? I've been a litigator for 22 years. We still wear gowns, and you wear your little band, and you wear your black and white clothes. And that day was just special, because I kind of felt in my heart that this was going to be a good day for India. And what a day it was. This court came out for our constitution. They came out for people who had been left out of that embrace for so long. Uh, so it was, I think, just a very big day. How many people were in the room? It was packed. There were people waiting outside. 
um, uh, as, as the lawyers litigating the case, you were in the first row. So you were looking at the justices as they walked in. Their individual judgments are passed on by court clerks to them. They tear open the envelope, and they're looking at you, and you're looking at them. And the litigator's code is no change of expression, irrespective of whether you're losing or winning. And we're hearing these resounding judgments, one after the others, talking about equality and dignity and love and expression. They uh, used your words, didn't yeah. they? Yeah. And the final justice said, you know, history owes LGBT Indians an apology to them and their families. And, you know, as these decisions, you know, just the operative parts were being read, um, we could hear chairs outside the courtroom. But we're still, we have like our serious litigator faces on. I'm choked up thinking about it. Yeah, and it was just, it was a moment. You know, I remember in 2013 standing in that courtroom and that law being upheld and watching a judge doing that to so many of us. And I remember now, you know, standing up in this courtroom and hearing this apology, this apology that meant so much. There were parents in that courtroom. Mm. This court, I think, took back so many citizens into its embrace that it was a moment. It was a real moment. So I think it was a great day, I think, for many, many, many Indians. I think we remembered our founding. Mm -hmm. We remembered our drafters of our constitution. This is a constitution whose prime architect is the son of an untouchable. He had to sit at the back of his classroom, but he gave us a constitution, which helped me tell a story in a courtroom that surely this constitution will not leave out of its embrace so many millions of its citizens, that this could not have been the intent. So to those drafters who gave us that, to our clients who fought this fight, and who asked so little of us, when, and we could offer them so little, and to judges who were introspective enough to redress a mistake that their institution had made and came out with these beautiful, resounding judgments um, and have given us a foundation for the future. So it was just, it's a wonderful moment, but it also, Sarah, I think most importantly, tells you about the power of the law to act as an instrument to redress harm and to be a foundation for a future. And I think if you have listeners who are, you know, thinking about law school and the law, I would say to them, it's a good gig. It's a good gig. What do you think the essential difference was in the way they understood this case in 2013 yeah. and in 2018? Yeah. I think there were a bunch of different things. I cannot speculate on you know, good old-fashioned instincts like homophobia, right? Yeah. But I can say as a litigating lawyer that we changed strategy. Mm -hmm. We brought in LGBT people to court. Courtrooms are theaters of storytelling. You need petitioners who have stories that you can then tell. Um, so I think that's the first thing, that you told compelling stories. I think the second thing is that after the loss in 2013, LGBT Indians also decided that there was nothing left to lose. And I think there was folks coming out, there was mobilizing, there were stories in the press. So I think that as a lesson, in moments of great darkness, you must rise. And so this was a moment when lawyers and clients and movements and, and just folks 
just decided to rise out of this terrible loss. So I think that was the second thing. But the third thing is we were very clear that we would be back in court. You know, there was no question. Two days after the 2013 decision, I had gone with a couple of other colleagues of the legal team for a run in, in Lodi Gardens, which is, a, which is like a central park in Delhi. And as we were doing that run, we actually saw the judge who wrote that decision oh. walking along on the other side because he had retired that day. He had retired the day he gave the decision. And I remember looking at him and just continuing with my run because I said, you know, I have a long fight here and we will be back in court, but I will not let you do this to us um, and leave it at that. You know, the thing is, I think rights and equality and dignity is not a one-way battle. It is an ongoing battle. And you will lose and you will win, but you have to keep at it. I think this is true for all great constitutional democracies, including America, that you will have your moments of darkness and you will have your moments of light. But as someone said, eternal vigilance is the price that you have to pay, you know, for democratic rights. You're not taking anything for granted. You can't take anything for granted. Um, courts are one avenue to be able to show that you're not taking your dignity lightly and that you will not accept segregation or a second-class citizenship in any which way. Is there anything you want to add that I've forgotten to ask you? No, I just think for the countries out there where this battle is still being waged, you know, we are with you. We hear you. We appreciate your fears. We have faced those fears. Uh, and we are with you on this journey. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That's Minika Guraswamy, a human rights lawyer from India. This year, foreign policy names her one of the world's top 100 global thinkers. As we mentioned, Kenya is in the middle of its own debate over a colonial-era law criminalizing LGBT lives and relationships. And now a similar version of that law is being debated publicly in two other former colonies, Singapore and Malaysia. First Person is produced by Dan Efron and edited by Rob Sachs, with help this week from Ben Solway. I'm Sarah Wildman, and I've been your host. If you like first person, you'll love Deep Dish on Global Affairs, a weekly podcast going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. Subscribe to Deep Dish on Global Affairs today, wherever you get your podcasts.